Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We'll pick up in our journey through the book of Luke in verse 26 this morning. I'll tell you as we as you uh, turn there in your Bibles that we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, the text is quite thick, and uh, there is much to consider from it. And so we, we won't waste any time after we read the text in a moment and ask for the Lord's help to understand it. We're, we will dive right in. I'll tell you before we uh, read it together that this text really uh, has at least six points uh, in it. And those six points are, are gathered together under two main headings. So we're going to see in this text the compassion of Christ in suffering. That's the, the first main section, the compassion of Christ in his suffering. And then we'll turn to consider the response to Christ's suffering. In the compassion of Christ's suffering, we see Christ as the compassionate prophet, the compassionate priest, and the compassionate king. And as we consider the responses that Luke sets before us, we consider the response of creation and the response of the crowd. And lastly, we'll give some time and consideration to our appropriate response to the text as well. So with that, let's look to the text now, read it, and ask for the Lord's help in understanding it. Luke 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, 
and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, friends. Father, we ask now for your help in considering your word. Lord, there there is much to consider here. And so we pray, God, that you would focus our minds. Lord, remove any distractions from our minds. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the meaning of your word to us. And that in doing so, Father, that um, we would come to see, as my brother prayed earlier, Christ as he is. And in seeing him for who he is, Lord, that we would respond with greater, more robust, more thorough and consistent worship of Him. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. We have in the first section the compassion of Christ in suffering to consider, friends. Our, Our passage opens with one Simon of Cyrene being taken by the soldiers and made to bear Jesus' cross. Due to the the punishment that had already been inflicted on Jesus, he became too weary to carry the crossbeam as was customary for those headed to Roman crucifixion. So we find that Simon was chosen to help Jesus get to the designated execution spot. This, we know, certainly provided some temporary relief for Jesus, but bear in mind that it also ensured that he didn't perish before going to experience the full agony of the cross. We know very little about Simon and and why he was chosen for this task. It does seem that Simon and his family were were known throughout the first century church. This could mean that Simon was already a follower of the Lord Jesus. And, And upon seeing the Lord Jesus as he came in from the country, he communicated this somehow to the Lord Jesus and The soldiers, in seeing that, decided that if he was going to identify with Jesus, then he would identify with Jesus' cross of suffering as well. If that is the case, then these soldiers surely were not aware of what a profound gospel reality that they were working out. Because indeed, every follower of Christ is called to take up their cross. But perhaps it was after interacting with the Lord here that Simon was converted. Upon witnessing the suffering of Christ and and his demeanor in such suffering, then perhaps he was converted. That's, That's totally plausible. Because when you consider what manner in which Jesus went about his suffering, it can't be understood as anything less than remarkable. One might say that it was supernatural. And, and this is evident from the responses from those who were witnesses of Jesus' suffering. So, of course, then, it would behoove us to consider now how it is that Jesus has borne the cross and what makes it so 
extraordinary. In, in doing this, we first consider Jesus as the compassionate prophet. This is the first picture that Luke gives to us in the passage, that of the compassionate prophet. Look there with me at verse 27. It says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. These folks had come to, to know of the torment that Jesus was enduring and, and came to see for themselves the great burden that he was bearing for the sins of mankind. And as they raised up their voices in sorrow over what was taking place, the, the sense of the language here is that there was, this was a noisy demonstration. They, they weren't ashamed. They were sorrowful over what was happening here with Jesus. And they weren't ashamed to let anyone know about it. That they were moved to mourn over Christ, knowing His innocence. And Jesus turns to them with, with the most remarkable disposition. In this, his, his hour of greatest need, His greatest physical and mental and spiritual distress. When it's most natural for anyone to be so overwhelmed that they're unable to think of anyone or anything other than themselves, in that kind of moment, verse 28 says that Jesus turned to these women and speaks to them in a way that is totally void of self-concern. Rather, He, he dem demonstrates a, a concern for them. Look at what it says. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So here we have this man, the man that's in the middle of enduring the greatest injustice in history. And he tells them, don't, don't weep for me. If anyone is worthy of, of care and concern, it's certainly Jesus in this moment. Yet he is not of the mind to think of himself in this moment. He begins telling these women who were of the city of Jerusalem what, what a terrible fate awaited their city. And, and it wasn't here in spite of his suffering, that he was being spiteful in his suffering. It's not the sense of the text that we get. It was a warning from a disheartened prophet. The, the day that Jesus spoke of, when the inhabitants of Jerusalem would envy those that had never born children so as to not see these children endure such punishment. That, that day was the day of the Roman siege of Jerusalem. I say day, it was really a, a long, elongated siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. History tells us that by A.D. 70, the, the Roman government had grown weary of the opposition of the Jews. So they decided to handle it by slaughtering all of the Jews within Jerusalem before destroying the city itself. It was a time of truly unthinkable torment, most of which is far too graphic for me to describe in this setting. And this is the day that Jesus warned of. 
The political cause of this day was the constant rising up of the Jews against Rome and the occupation that they had set up there in Judea. This is why uh, Jesus says of the Romans, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Meaning, if the Romans are executing me for insurrection, who by the very announcement of Pilate am not guilty, oh, woe to you, Jerusalem. Woe to you, the Jews who rise up against them. What will they do to you, who are actually guilty of insurrection. You see, this was the political cause of the, the siege that was to come. But, but why would that cause Jesus so much sorrow? After all, nation rises against nation every day, right? Put simply, it's because Jesus was not just foretelling the day that the Romans would desecrate the city. More than that, this was the day that God's judgment would fall against the capital city of the Jews in light of their rejection of him. And the Romans were simply the, the, the mechanism. They were simply the, the agents by which that judgment would take place. But their judgment, just as it was, did not make Jesus glad. Like many prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus was warning of judgment to come. But just as Old Testament prophetic warnings came as a rejection of God's law, here the judgment will come due to a rejection of the one who fulfilled God's law on their behalf. So, so here, Jesus acts as the compassionate prophet telling of the judgment, but mourning because of their rejection of Him. You see, in rejecting Him, they rejected the mercy that he extended them. In his progress to the cross, verse 32 tells us that two others were, who, who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And verse 33 says, when they came to the place that is the skull, they crucified him and the criminals. One on the right and one on the left. Luke is very direct about the matter. He's, he's not in describing the crucifixion very detailed in how it is that Jesus comes to experience his death. Only he describes the, the suffering and the humiliation that surrounded it. Most are likely familiar with the agonizing process of Roman crucifixion. The soldiers would lay out the body on the cross, stretching the arms open wide and securing them by driving nails through the hands or the wrists. And at the same time, the, 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 the legs would be extended down and a nail driven through them. And in this way, the cross was raised up and the individual on it now naked and exposed to the elements, the heat of the day and the cold of the night, they would then push up on that nail driven through their ankles to try to get breath in their lungs. Only then to sink back down as their flesh tore 
through their wrists, exhaling. And this process would go on. The only way for them to get air was for them to push up against that nail driven through their feet or their ankles and then to sink back down, unable to breathe. And this process would go on for some time. And eventually, the victim would suffocate to death. This, friends, is, is, is the moment we come to in our text. The, the, the moment of Jesus' agonizing crucifixion. And in this moment, we see Christ, not just as a compassionate prophet here, as He has told this crowd that they should weep not for Him, but, but consider what is to come in your rejection of Me. No, now we see Jesus acting as the compassionate priest. At the, the height of His humiliation, what do we find Jesus doing but interceding for sinners? You know that as a prophet, one's role is to go before the people on behalf of God. That was their role, to deliver God's word to God's people. The priest's role is to go before God on behalf of the people, to intercede for the people. And this is the activity that we see in Jesus as we look on Him here. Look with me at verse 34 and 36. There we see that Jesus... Or, I'm sorry, there we see that, that these soldiers are casting lots to divide Jesus' garments. And, and, and the rulers there with the soldiers scoffing at him, mocking at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. And it was amidst this humiliation that Jesus then prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what can only be explained is a supernatural level of mercy and grace. Rather than calling down judgment on those that carry out such terrible injustice against him, Jesus here pleads that the Father would forgive them their sins. Now it should be noted here that Jesus was not pleading that their pardon come apart from an exercise of faith in Him. We know that forgiveness of sins comes only through faith in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7 is clear. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespass. So Jesus here is, is what He's doing is He's pleading that His mediatory work would be applied by faith even to those who would mock and deride His sacrifice to make their salvation possible. Jesus pleads that the blindness which veils them from seeing the true nature of Christ would be lifted. And they then, in beholding Him as the Son of God, would exalt in and rejoice in the one that they had ridiculed. What, what compassion is necessary for Jesus to exhibit such mercy and grace. For Him to intercede to the Father on behalf of these. It's not only the restraint of judgment and wrath that Jesus asks for on their behalf. 
He asked that those who shame him would share in the eternal blessings and inheritance of the sons and daughters of God. He asked that those who were worthy of condemnation would be made co-heirs with him. What infinite mercy. What infinite grace. What infinite compassion we see here from the Lord Jesus. It's compassion that he exhibits in the height of his suffering. He, he prays for those afflicting and assailing him. But not only in his suffering does he, not only does he pray for sinners, he, he also pardons sinners on the cross. As the compassionate king, we see him in this office on the cross. This is the picture that Luke paints next for us here. There were, of course, two thieves who were executed next to Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. Luke tells us one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He joined, you see, in the, the, the scoffing and the mockery that the soldiers and rulers were engaged in. He, he engaged in this questioning of the validity of the deity of Jesus. And he, he chose to question that, notice, because of what Jesus chose to do. He chose to question the divinity of Jesus because Jesus chose rather to subject himself to torment for the sake of God's elect rather than save himself. Which, by the way, is an object lesson for us here at the cross that, that we can learn from these scoffers. The, the scorn of those who are blinded by unbelief should not really surprise us. It really shouldn't surprise us today that those in unbelief would, would scorn us. That they would look to God with blasphemous thoughts. That they would bring Him down to speak of His inability to do things. You see, they assume that because God does not do what seems good and right to them, that He cannot do what is good, what they deem good and right. They confuse God's wisdom and His restraint with His inability. This man didn't think Jesus high and holy. He thought Jesus no different than himself. So in his ridicule of our Lord, this thief, he goes beyond telling Jesus to prove his kingship by, by, by freeing himself. He tells Jesus to free him as well. As though it be appropriate to equate Himself with Jesus in his position. The arrogance and audacity. But verse 40 tells us that the other rebuked him. The other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? The other thief calls to mind for the scoffing thief that he's knocking on death's door. You're under the sentence of condemnation, soon to meet your Creator, and you have 
No humility. No reverence for this one who is clearly set apart and distinct from us. Then he makes the distinctions between their sufferings for this other thief. Look at verse 41. He says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And and this is key, friends. Making the distinctions, numerous as they are, making the distinctions between Christ and ourselves is fundamental to receiving the faith and and to walking in the faith. And, And in making the distinction between themselves and Jesus, it's clear that the penitent thief Receive, excuse me, he perceived that the sign that hung above Jesus that was intended to be satirical, claiming that he be the king of the Jews, he perceived that this sign was no satire at all. He perceived that Jesus was indeed king. And so in verse 42, we're told that he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And what do we find from our Lord again at this final hour? You you know, it would be totally understandable for him to respond with with, with pious contempt, right? You you can hear the possible responses, can't you? You spent your whole life as a thief. Taking from others what's not meant to you. And now, in the hour of your death, you have the temerity to ask for more that you have not earned? Or or, or it it would have been totally understandable for Jesus to respond with a a sort of self-focused indifference. Man, please. I've finished my race. I've poured myself out. Please, just just leave me to my prayers and don't burden me with your questions in this hour. After all, this was the hour of his greatest physical, spiritual, and emotional burden. And this guy wants to add to it? No one would blame Jesus for either of those responses. And he would have been totally justified if he refused mercy to the man. Some of the self-love folks today probably would have encouraged Jesus to the response of self-centered indifference. But praise God, that's not the heart of the Savior. That's not the kind of king that he is. He's a compassionate king. That's that's the only way we make sense of Jesus' response to the man, is to understand him as the compassionate king. How how does he respond in this, his most difficult hour? Look there at verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man is a self-admitted guilty criminal that, that can't even uphold the law of the government, much less the law of God. Yet in a humble Recognition of the reality of his sin and the distance that they mark between he and Jesus, he asked that Jesus would remember him. And how does our Lord respond? 
full pardon. Full pardon from the king. Not, not only will his sins be forgiven, but today his company will be with the king. And why? Because Jesus is a compassionate king. Luke turns his attention now to the conclusion of the, the crucifixion. And, and, and here, it's, it's now that we begin to behold in Christ's death the responses to his suffering. They are various. We, we've considered the, the compassion of Christ in his suffering that's so remarkable. But now we need to consider the, the various responses to Christ's suffering. There's, there's much to consider here, but because Luke describes for us not just the, the various responses of man to this great and awful event, but, but also how the very material universe responded. We find in this last paragraph creation's response, the crowd's response, and then we find something here of what our response should be. But first, Luke mentions the response of creation to the suffering of Christ. In verse 44 we read, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. <coughs> so Luke records that at the suffering of Christ, the most unusual spectacle occurred. At midday, the sun veiled its light. And it's not as though this was a natural occurrence, like they got up that morning and it was just a gloomy day anyway. And this is how the gospel writers contrive that. No. Each of the gospel writers make clear that this was an extraordinary event in which the, a sudden sign was given in which the sun veiled its light. And, and it's clear that this is an extraordinary event because of the responses that are recorded. But friends, it should be noted here as we consider the, the creation's response that as we consider the, the creation's response, we're really considering the creator's response to this event, right? We know that creation's not alive in and of itself. It can't animate itself to communicate anything. Rather, God animates his creation so that it communicates exactly and at all times, what he intends for it to. The question comes then, what exactly is God communicating in this event? Well, you could read several commentaries on that and come away with several different answers to that question. Some would tell you that as the sun hit its light, God was hiding his face from the darkest of all crimes. Others would say that the when the sun extinguished its light, it pointed to the death of the sun of righteousness. Some would say it referred to the, the blinding of the Jewish nation. Or, or we might draw parallels between the three hours of darkness here at Christ's great exodus and the three days of darkness that preceded the exodus from Egypt. But as fascinating as some of that sounds... The truth is, we don't know. The Bible simply doesn't give us a clear and detailed answer 
as to the meaning of this. All we can say is that the world is meant to glean from this that in the suffering of Christ, God was rendering judgment. Yet it was not only in the habitat of humanity that God made His judgment known. We also see here that God makes His judgment known in the temple, which was for so long considered the habitat of God Himself. It's in the consideration of this feat that the substance of God's justice is made more clear. Look at verse 45 where Luke tells us, The curtain of the temple was torn in two. This feat is a a well-documented historical fact. And its implications are evident. The, The curtain in the temple separated the holy of holies, where God made His earthly dwelling, and then the rest of the temple, where people could come and go and make their sacrifices and bring their offerings. The the veil, the the curtain in the temple, it symbolized separation between God and man that was brought about by sin. Only the high priest could pass through the curtain, and he but once a year into the presence of God. He passed through once a year to make sacrifice for the whole of God's people. The tearing of the veil symbolized that Christ's suffering and death was indeed the true and final sacrifice for sins for all time. So so the judgment of God is clear. In the death of Christ, the wrath of God against sin has been satisfied. There can be no adding to or perfecting of any payment beyond that of Christ's and what He's accomplished on the cross. The author of Hebrews makes this plain to us in saying in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened opened for us through the curtain. That is through His flesh, the author says. The body of Jesus, you see, is torn apart that the curtain might be torn apart, friends. I can't resist the observation that in the Lord's providence that this is the text that we're considering on this Reformation Day. We'd be considering a text like this that refutes so much of the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine which sets up all kinds of unbiblical barriers between God and man. Praise be to God, friends. All Barriers between God and man have been torn down in Christ Jesus. And with the barrier being torn down, it's it's then that verse 46 tells us that Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And with that, Luke turns our attention to the crowd's response. The crowd's response. It should be said at the outset that in meditating here on the the crowd's response to the suffering and death of Jesus, that that there's nothing really for us to emulate here. The response is quite sad. Because in it we find that those who came blinded by unbelief leave blinded by unbelief. Starting in verse 47, we read... 
Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this, was, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Now you might say, well, hey, look, they were saddened. They were saddened by his death. Isn't that a, a, a good thing? <clears throat> and while their sadness might show us something, it doesn't evidence for us, friends, that they were born again. It's been established that if Luke desires to show that one has come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, he'll make it plain. That's what he's just done for us with the thief, right? And if you consider the contrast between, between the, the thief and this crowd, the difference becomes apparent. With the thief, we see that he not only perceives the, the true identity of Jesus, he also recognizes his own sinfulness. Whereas in the response of the crowd, all we're told is that they perceived that Jesus was innocent. Nothing of his divinity, nothing of their own sin. It's clearly perceived that he was innocent, but that's all that was perceived. Luke records that the centurion praised God, but this shouldn't be taken as a, as a humble heart bowing in submission to God. The, the sense here is that the centurion was so struck by the upheaval of nature so as to determine that certainly a divine being was engaged in and concerned with the suffering that had just taken place. So much so that it, it convinced him of Jesus' innocence. But his praise of God is no different than the, the fleeting remarks that celebrities make at award shows. You know the kind that I'm talking about, right? The celebrities that make their living and find their success advancing all kinds of sinful and ungodly ideologies. And then what happens when they go to these award shows? They get up there and they say, well, first I just want to thank God and uh, my Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm like, I'm so what? <laughs> Something doesn't add up here. <laughs> when they do these things, I, I think, well, listen, you know, God might be in control of all things, but he ain't about what you're about, okay? And, and this is really what we see here in the centurion. There is some recognition of God at work here, but it's really just a fleeting concept that the Lord has brought judgment in some way. And for the, the, the crowds that had been assembled... And, and then returned home beating their breasts, we're told. The, the beating of the breasts was a sign of, of solemnity and, and sorrow, for sure. However, recognizing the, the wrong that had been done to Jesus, and their, their mourning of His bearing this unjust act, that's all that they're mourning, is the injustice, not their sin. There's a great gap between recognizing that Jesus was a great and innocent man and seeing your sins credit to him in that moment of awful judgment. You know people like this. I certainly do. They think their awareness of Jesus and his sinless state is quite enough, right? They either reckon him as someone to be modeled after or they believe that their mere awareness of him is somehow enough to reconcile them with God. 
And there couldn't be anything further from the truth. And so as we, as we <clears throat> come to the end of this passage, we're left to consider, well, well, what's a right response then to the suffering of Christ? What's our response to be? <clears throat> and this is, that's, that's the right sequence, friends, that we find laid out here in, in the text. This is the biblical sequence that we find all through the scriptures. We first come to see and savor the Lord and then respond to Him. That, that's why that uh, at our men's breakfast yesterday, Neil exhorted us to remember our church's mission statement and the intentional order of it. Since uh, many had forgotten yesterday what our church's uh, mission statement was, I'll remind you that our church's mission statement is to treasure, build, and proclaim. We strive to treasure God's glory in Christ, build one another up in the faith, and proclaim His gospel. And Neil reminded us at the men's breakfast yesterday that it's necessary to treasure Christ in order to build one another up in the faith and then proclaim the gospel. So the question for us, friends, as we consider here the Lord Jesus in His suffering, the Lord Jesus as the compassionate prophet, the compassionate priest, and the compassionate king, the question for us this morning is, do you treasure Christ in His sacrifice? Do, do, do you treasure Him as this compassionate one? who has paid the price for redemption. Perhaps today is the first time that you've heard or understood this activity of Jesus on the cross being something worth treasuring. Perhaps it has only now occurred to you that Jesus accomplishes something on the cross that you're incapable of accomplishing on your own. A sacrifice that, that satisfies the eternal wrath of God against your sin. And if that's you, no, no matter where you are in life, be it very young, or be it like the thief on the cross, very near death, if that's you, then, then you should not be like the crowd, friend. You don't be like the crowd and simply make some observation of the sacrifice of Christ and leave here with a sort of solemnity, thinking, oh wow, what, a, what an accomplishment that Christ has done on the cross in His suffering. Don't let yourself stop there. No, friend, like the thief, cast yourself. Cast yourself in all your hope on the glorious King who has humbled Himself in an unthinkable way to bear the wrath of God for you. Find your hope of eternal life and peace with God in this precious sacrifice worth treasuring. But maybe you've been a Christian for years. And, and, and you wonder, what am I to glean from a, a text like this? Well, brothers and sisters, our response begins in the same place. And that is to treasure Christ. We look at this text and we consider what a wondrous way that Jesus has come to us as the true and great prophet, priest, and king 
that prophet, priest, and king that Israel longed for so long in the Old Testament. We behold him. We behold him and this precious, priceless gift of redemption and reconciliation with God that he's given us. And in treasuring that reality, friends, you wonder what you're to do. Well, you're to treasure that reality. And in treasuring that reality, we're then led to build one another up in the faith. We're then led to proclaim his gospel among all peoples. Isn't this readily apparent from the text that that this is what it leads to? I mean, the, the Bible calls us to imitate Christ, right? Ephesians 5 and verse 2 tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Walk in love. Imitate Christ in this way, we're told. Friends, there are no doubt things that Christ accomplished in his suffering that we cannot accomplish. The things that you should not think that you should be able to accomplish. We are incapable of absorbing the wrath of God for ourselves, much less for anyone else. But, but notice, Ephesians 5 that I just read a moment ago doesn't call us to that. It calls us to imitate Christ's selfless love for others. Therefore, as we see in the sufferings of Christ that, that he was focused not on himself, So we're called to live lives not focused on ourselves. Rather, as Christ was concerned, even in his darkest hour, with the advancement of the kingdom and the eternal destiny of those around him, we too are called to live in the same manner. It's the logical, spirit-empowered response, brothers and sisters, That in beholding the magnificence of who Christ Jesus has proven himself to be and what he's accomplished for us, that we would give our attention to what he's given his attention to. And that, friends, is the advancement of the kingdom and the state of the souls of those around us. But to steal Neil's point again from yesterday... We can never give our attention to others before treasuring Christ ourselves and what he's done for us. Otherwise, our service would be somehow self-motivated and frankly, it'd be short-lived. The amazing grace known to us in Christ's sacrificial death is what motivates living for him. You see, brothers and sisters, we never get over the gospel It's not just the the doorway to the Christian life, the gospel. It is the Christian life. There's no greater or deeper thing. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And why? Well, he goes on. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we we have nothing to boast in this morning but Christ and Him crucified. 
Let us treasure Christ, especially in his crucifixion and what he accomplishes there in his mediation between us and God. But friend, don't only treasure him. If we do treasure him truly, then we're inevitably led to work for building up the faith of our brothers and sisters. By the way, where do you do that? In the church. We build up the faith of our brothers and sisters. And we, we see Christ here giving his attention toward the state of the souls around him. So as we treasure him, we're led also then to give attention to the souls around us. So our attention should be continually focused on the proclamation of his gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is a glorious work that Christ has accomplished for us. It's a work we can't fully comprehend. Oh, but God, it's a work that we do desire to be steeped in. Lord, we we pray that you would help us to grasp the, the weight of Christ's suffering all the more. So that we would be compelled to follow in his example. That we would be concerned with what concerns him. And we would give our time and our talent and our treasures to what he has given himself for. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.